You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello, everybody. I'm Ian Furr, Security Integrations Engineer. And I'm Luke Vanderlinden, Vice President of Membership and Marketing, and this is the RHISAC Podcast. Luke, welcome back. I heard you were in Australia recently for a couple of events we did with Palo Alto Networks. How'd that go? It was a great trip and a great opportunity we had to meet with the members we already have in Australia and meet with a bunch of retailers who frankly hadn't heard of us and are now interested in joining and becoming a part of our community. It was a long flight, but I'm not complaining. I can't complain. Australia is a great place to go. I would say overall, that's what we often run into is just awareness that we exist. So it's great to get out there and spread the word about our sharing community, whether here in the U.S. or in the ANZ, as they call Australia, New Zealand, or the greater APAC region or Europe or wherever we are. So just a reminder, thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for asking that while we may be based in the U.S., we're a global organization with members around the globe. If you're not a member and you or you are a member and you know of a company that should be, just shoot us an email at membership at rhisac.org and let us know. And a big thank you to Palo Alto and especially Ben Ladkin there in Melbourne who put it all together and invited us to come along. Sounds awesome. I hope you had a really fun trip and I hope we start to see some of those new potential members uh, become new members entirely and start seeing them pop up on our sharing platforms. Yeah, and a great opportunity uh, to, an excuse rather, to go back. It was a great trip, but I am glad to be back, and I'm glad to be back hosting the RHI SAC podcast with you, Ian. In today's episode, we have two more interviews that we recorded at the 2022 Cyber Intelligence Summit in September. Yeah, so our first one features Mike Tassaro, Distinguished Engineer at No Name Security. He shared with me some of the common ways that APIs can pose a security risk to our applications and how often API security testing is being incorporated into the CI/CD pipeline. And then we had actually a great conversation that we had with Ryan Miller, Senior Director of Cybersecurity, and Kelsey Helms, Principal Analyst, both from Target. They shared with me some of the highlights from their summit presentation, including how to take ransomware resiliency beyond the basics, and also sources that they use for threat intelligence. But let's kick things off with Ian and Matt's API conversation. All right. Good morning, everybody. We are here with Matt Tassaro from No Name Security. Matt, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and a little bit about No Name Security? Yeah, sure. I'm Matt Tassaro. I'm a distinguished engineer for No Name Security. I've been doing AppSec and AppSec automation for uh, 15 some odd years. I've been with No Name for almost a year, not quite. No Name Security has a unified API security platform. We do sort of the three major areas of API security. It's what we call uh, API posture management, which is getting an inventory and a classification of the data inside of that inventory of all of your APIs. Runtime security, which is monitoring and reacting or responding to attacks on APIs. And then testing, active testing, where we'll actively test APIs ideally in a pre-product environment and even more ideally as part of CICD. Awesome. So APIs have become absolutely essential to all of our applications, but now they're also one of the biggest threats to our application security. So can you tell us why APIs pose such a security risk? Certainly. Yeah, you're, you're right about them being vital. It's sort of hard to do anything in modern IT without talking to an API of some sort. If you're familiar with the expression that data is the new oil, Right, how that oil gets pumped around is APIs. I mean, they are the pipelines in which data goes. So, as an attacker, I generally the data is the most interesting thing, not necessarily the system, and that's where the data is. The other interesting aspect about APIs is if you roll back to the 90s when the internet was just this new fledgling thing and browsers were these weird new creatures, 
we didn't have controls around browsers, so that was a great attack surface. But browsers have matured a lot mm -hmm. over time, oh, and sure. they're much more rugged. Right, so as an attacker, do I want to attack the rugged thing that has some of the you know best and brightest minds working on it, or do I want to attack the thing that a developer wrote that is kind of new and not well understood? So the controls that you have as a, a defender are typically much less for an API than they are for you know, a traditional kind of web app. Mm -hmm. So one of the challenges that I've seen as an API tester has been visibility into all of the APIs in an environment. We know that you need to have an API inventory, but what information should be included in that inventory and what do we need to know a little bit more other than just the fact that an API exists? Yeah, I, I've tested APIs myself and it is amazing how you can have docs that say this is what is the API and you can have the reality that is not the same. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I've had to like upstream proxy API clients to understand how to talk to the API because the docs were so off. Yep. It was just, just a nightmare. So for inventories, it, obviously you want to know all of your APIs. Mm -hmm. But there's a granularity that I think a lot of, particularly if you're trying to convert a DAST tool for traditional web apps into APIs where they fall short. So besides just knowing all the APIs, for every API you need to understand the host it's running on, the path of that API method call, and then the path of the API call, and then the method, the HTTP method. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm like getting a list of all users doing a get to an API request, that's very different than a delete to the mm -hmm. all users, right? Very different <laughs> security context around that. But if your tool doesn't make the distinction at the HTTP method level, you're kind of, you, you don't have the granularity you need. And then on the data side, I mean, obviously the most important thing is to classify sensitive data. Now there's classes of data that are just obvious, SSNs, phone numbers, those kind of names, addresses. But they're also having the ability to sort of classify things that are unique to your business that are sensitive. You may have internal numbers that you don't want leaking out or internal you know, names or some such thing mm -hmm. that you would need to be able to also configure a tool to do, which is very handy. I, I remember a past company that I worked for that said, hey, we would like you to scan our website for SSNs because we're concerned about have SSNs you know, publicly exposed. Oh, okay, fine. Well, it turns out that um, somebody in the purchasing department thought invoices should be three digits dash two digits dash four digits. <laughs> oh, no. So. <laughs> False positives all over the place. It was amazingly bad because I, I get the, the initial kind of report back and I'm like, oh my goodness, we have thousands of SSNs. Yeah. Like, oh. And then you look through them and you're like, oh, they're all freaking purchase orders. <laughs> As a pen tester, I've been on that side of things and I've gone, oh no, that's that's a lot of findings. And then it turns out most of them are false positives. But yeah. it's still a scary thing to see, right? It, it is. That initial like OMG moment is not mm -hmm. a friendly thing. Yeah. So while we're getting into the security testing side of things, OWASP recognizes the risk of APIs and released a top 10 list for API vulnerabilities. Are you still seeing these vulnerabilities today? And which ones, in your opinion, should we be paying the most attention to? Uh, definitely seeing them today. And I don't know that they're going to change radically just because, and I think this was a smart move on the OWASP side of things. They're very broad categories. Some mm -hmm. of them, well, some of them are fairly specific, like BOLA is very specific, but some of them, like you need an inventory or you should do monitoring, those yeah. are never going to go away. Mm -hmm. But definitely, I think authorization and authentication are the two big areas where APIs really kind of fall on their face. Mm -hmm. And I mean, service to service, authorization on authentication has been a problem for years. And yeah. if there's some good solutions for it, but they have a lot of sharp edges. JWT is a pretty cool technology, mm -hmm. but it's really easy to misconfigure. Yep. So you don't do that right, like fun things happen for a pen tester and not for you, the defender. Yes, right? been on that side of things. And then interestingly, I did an interview with um, Neil Matatal, who was a 
former employee of GitHub and worked at GitHub for years, and they actually, every time they tightened the controls on their web login, they noticed a spike in attacks on the, the login air quotes to their API, where I could send a username, mm-hmm. a password, and get a token back and then go do my thing with the API, right? Yeah. So as they kept tightening their login to make it more robust, they keep seeing spikes. And the third or fourth time this happened, they just realized we can't protect login sufficiently on the API, so they took it out. Hmm. And it was wow. a, a couple-year transition because you can imagine how many thousands of yeah. clients are interacting with that random people have developed or what have you with GitHub suddenly have to change, and the way that they pull a token is not the same. Oh, interesting. I hadn't heard that story before. Yeah, that, that really surprised me because that, for that big of a company to take something out of an API that was that used yeah. was really surprising. That's really cool. So kind of the follow-up to that is have you seen many changes – in that OWASP list since 2019, in your experience, not for the official list. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't really seen many changes. I know they're just now starting on the next iteration of it, mm-hmm. so we'll see what boils out of that. And nicely, the current iteration is trying to be more data-driven. And the same thing happened with the traditional OWASP API top 10. A bunch of people got around a table and said, these are the things we're seeing. Okay, let's write them down. We'll do the first, you know, Rev 1. Yep. So Rev 2 of the API will hopefully be much more data-driven. And so it'll be interesting to see. I don't know that we'll see changes, but we may see prioritization change. There we go. I could see some shifting of down or up of, of some items. Okay. So another thing that's made API security challenging is the shift to cloud. Many organizations are dealing with something like a hybrid environment. Are there cloud-specific API challenges that organizations should be aware of? There can be, certainly. And obviously, if you're talking to a cloud, you're talking to an API. That's just kind of par for the course. You, you don't do like interactive uh, infrastructure without having an API involved. But besides those sort of baseline, I use an API to talk to a, a cloud. You can have some interesting things from a, a lot of times from a monitoring or even keeping an eye on things perspective because you have dynamically changing environments that happen in a cloud where developers may be pushing out APIs at a, at a speed with which you can't keep up. Mm-hmm. And then visibility into that, particularly if you're on multi-cloud or you've just bought you know, a company that has Azure, but you're an AWS shop or this other thing that you bought uses GCP. And now you have three different clouds you have to manage with potential APIs there. Do you have a solution that the deployment is flexible enough to be able to live in multiple clouds? And maybe you, like some of the bigger companies, have multiple clouds and on-prem, right? And can you handle the monitoring, the inventory, the response? on a multi-cloud level. It's always an interesting challenge. So another one is application security in general has kind of adopted a shift-left approach where security is becoming more and more incorporated into the application development side of things. Are you seeing that same testing in the CI-CD pipeline being applied to APIs? And you kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier. Yeah, no, and that's, that's something that that's where I spent before I, I flipped over to the evil vendor side. <laughs> I, was, I was running AppSec teams, mm-hmm. and that was something I really pushed because obviously it's a feedback loop. And the quicker you can get the feedback loop through the developer, the better chance you have of getting it resolved quickly. And more importantly, they remember what they were thinking when they wrote it. Like, I've write code, and you ask me about it in three months, and I, I'm like, yeah, I wrote that, but mm-hmm. no, I don't know. Right, so I think one of the important things that I've seen with testing, and particularly shift-left testing, is obviously the ability to be called dynamically from CI/CD as a sort of table stakes. You have to have that. Mm-hmm. But I've also seen some interesting aspects where, particularly in the case where you have a web app that's backed by an API, you will have a DAST scanner test the web app and say, hey, we tested the API too. Maybe. Mm. 
Yeah. Like if there's a magical one-to-one relationship <laughs> between that web app and the API exposure, then you might kind of have gotten a decent test of it. And that assumes you're not doing any kind of sanitization inside of the web app, etc. So it it's better than nothing, certainly, but I wouldn't call that thoroughly testing an API. And so I think having a tool that can be called dynamically from a CI/CD pipeline can run quickly with a very targeted set of attacks. And the other interesting thing that I've found with some of the tests that are sort of a less than optimal solution is the retest, right? I've run a test, I've found an issue, you know, the dev teams have addressed that issue. Do I have to run a full test or can I test just that issue? And the ability to granularly test a single issue down to the host method path is really important because that thing runs in seconds, if, if that long. As yeah. opposed to running a full, I've got to test all the methods of the API because I just read in a spec file and sent out tons of malicious traffic. I mean, it works, but it's not, it's not effective and mm-hmm. it's not fast. So my last question is, do you have any advice specifically for people in the retail and hospitality security teams who are trying to get a handle on their own organization's API security. Yeah, ooh, that's a good one. So I, I don't know, this, it's funny. This is something that I remember from my AppSec days, and it's, I'm sure the, the sales and marketing people may not find this to be the sexiest thing, but I, I loved inventories. I, I worked at many, many places, and we never had a clue how many apps we had when I was mm-hmm. running AppSec. There was only one company, and they were a, a blessed exception, <laughs> that actually had a reliable list of applications. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, you're inevitably resource constrained as a security team. You never yep. have enough people. And so I have to make decisions to understand how I can best use this limited resource. And if I don't have an inventory, I'm guessing, right? And I'd like to take that guess and turn it into a decision. And the inventory gives you that. So. The other interesting thing is I would want to see, and this is self-serving because I work for No Name and we're a unified (laughs) platform, but I really struggle to understand how you would have a solution that does discovery slash inventory and a solution that does monitoring and a solution that does testing that don't talk to each other because your inventory can be, air quotes, freely updated by watching the traffic, right? And you can do interesting things like say, I saw this API show up on Friday at 3 p.m., Right? That you can do, but if they're separate solutions, now I have to make vendor one talk to vendor two, and that's always wonky. And the same thing for testing, right? If you've watched the traffic, I understand how to talk to that API. I may not even need a spec file, right? Or I can do interesting things and say, give me your spec file that you think the API is, and I'll give you the spec file I generated looking at network traffic, and let's do a diff. Mm-hmm. And you can have some very interesting findings come out of that. Yeah. Well, I hadn't even considered that approach. I wish I had thought about that while I was doing application testing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the diffs are really fun. I, I did that years and years ago on a SOAP thing where they had a documentation that explained the, the I don't remember the sum number, let's just say 12 calls that you could make to the SOAP API. Mm-hmm. Well, I pulled down the whistle and there was like 16. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to try to call those extra mm-hmm. ones and yeah. see what happens. And they were rather interesting from a oh. testing perspective. So yeah, the, the understanding like there's the reality that you think there is in your mm-hmm. docs, and there's the reality that's really the API and what it answers on the network. And understanding that difference can be really important. Well, there we go. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us today, Matt. That's all the questions I have. Awesome. It was a blast. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So we're going to take a quick break and hear a message from our sponsor, Fortinet. And then stick around after that while Target will talk some ransomware resilience. Today's show is brought to you by Fortinet. Fortinet provides retailers with top-rated cybersecurity solutions covering the expanding attack surface. Advantages include centralized visibility and management, lower TCO, and top performance. 
proven threat protection and seamless fabric integration delivers better, faster response to attacks across the entire network, including point-of-sale systems and other devices carrying sensitive information. And Fortinet helps simplify compliance with PCI DSS and other regulations. As digital innovation and the need to provide always-on customer experiences drive network transformation, retail cybersecurity has become more vital. It's essential to have a security partner that can provide simplified security and networking to keep customers' data safe and enable a superior consumer experience. For more information, contact the Fortinet team at retail at fortinet.com. All right, we are joined now by Ryan Miller and Kelsey Helms, both from the Cyber Threat Intelligence Department at Target. Yeah, thanks for having us. You guys are fresh from the stage at a session here at the RHISX Cybersecurity Summit. Thank you very much for doing that, and thanks for uh, talking with us today. We're talking about ransomware resilience. I have a couple of topics for you, kind of based on what you just presented. Ransomware is, of course, a high-profile topic that all security teams know that they need to prepare for. But ransomware resilience can be a broad and hard to actually technically implement. So how do you recommend organizations move past the basic best practices they can find online to really adapt the ransomware resilience strategy to the specifics of their organization? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, ransomware is really prevalent, and a lot of these threat groups are moving to use ransomware as opposed to any other sort of attack. So it is really important for organizations to make sure that they're resilient against that. One of the things we've been doing to move the needle forward is look at how to become resilient and continue serving our guests during a ransomware attack and not just looking at the basics of best practices, you know, any of that intrusion monitoring or isolation. So what we started to do is look at what systems were actually necessary to protect in order to serve our guests. We found that scope. Um, we really tried to find out a lot of baseline information about these systems so that we could understand where there were gaps. And then walked through a realistic ransomware scenario with these groups so that we could show them the ways that threat actor was likely to utilize their system, what they were likely to do, what actions they would see. And then we took all of these teams that were highly critical for our customer operations and had a larger discussion around that resiliency. You know, a lot of these groups, when we would talk to them, would say, well, this isn't our responsibility, you know, like we rely on this team, we're not really sure. So getting all of those teams together was really crucial for us to really, you know, close those gaps and make sure that we're addressing all of those issues. We have that resiliency solution. Right. So you mentioned incorporating threat intelligence in your ransomware strategy. Could you share a few of the open source channels that you use to collect the threat intelligence you use in your ransomware threat models? Yeah. First off, I think right, like threat intelligence it shouldn't just be focused on ransomware preparedness or resiliency. Right. You really need to think about how you can get threat intelligence into your organization, covering all threats, right, to really drive an Intel-led effort. The more teams, the more platforms, the more systems that you can inform with threat intelligence, the more hardening you can do and the more resilient you become overall. In terms of like open source, uh, you know, I'd say looking at threat intelligence is not, you shouldn't just look at open source first off, but from an open source perspective, if I had to choose one, I'd say Twitter is probably the best that there is out there because you're essentially getting a crowdsourced, you know, intelligence feed, right? So you have established security professionals that are tracking threats deep 
and they share that information out, right? So you can, if you follow the right individuals, you can get some real critical intelligence in real time that you can act upon. And there are other sources and feeds that you can go through. Like Feedly is a great uh, service to use to sort of scrape the internet for uh, multiple sites, and you can tailor that to certain intelligence terms or categories. But I think really, you know, taking a step further and specific to ransomware, understanding the ransomware threat landscape is probably more difficult than most of the other threats that we face, right? You have, you know, APTs or, or nation states follow a certain methodology. Cybercrime has been pretty consistent. But when you get into the ransomware, there's so many new factors that come into play, moving pieces that come into play. So tracking the ransomware landscape, however you can do that, I think is the most critical, right? So things like Flashpoint and Intel 471 that, that track the deep and dark web, and you know, using those services to really focus in on the communications of the threat actors that are involved in ransomware. Taking it a step beyond, or just tracking you know, the malware, which is useful and valuable, the ransomware itself, and understanding how that ransomware operates, but then looking at what are the behaviors of the actors behind them. They communicate, they have to communicate. It's a business model, right? And one of the unique things about ransomware is, is the public aspect to that, right? They have data leak sites where you post the victim on the website. There's a ton of intelligence that can be gleaned from just watching the data leak sites. Wow. But then even a step further, who are they communicating with? Who are they partnering with? Right? You can really get a good visibility into the shifts of the landscape, who they may be targeting, who they may be interested in targeting in the future. Um, and they even a step further from that, moving away from ransomware, because that's sort of the action or objective. Look, taking a look in communications around access, access brokers. Who are the individuals? Maybe they're posting, they have access to you know X company or Y company, and that might be weeks to a month before you actually see a compromise, right? And so you can get really good visibility in tracking those actors as well. And that really gives you a full scope understanding of ransomware landscape and really the, the interworkings of and the behaviors of the threat actors. I think it's also important to note that all of these sources are mostly sharing data or information. Uh, so what we do at Target is we make sure that we're also performing analysis and creating our own intelligence, which is what really creates our threat models. We're not necessarily relying just on this information that we're getting from these sources. We're performing a lot of our own analysis. And we know that a lot of teams don't necessarily have that capability, like either they're a small team, they don't have those resources. So that is one of the things that we really like about you know these information sharing sessions at RHI Slack, you know, being able to share that intelligence that we've been able to do because we have some of those resources. All right, they're sharing, we're sharing, and exactly. uh, we got to share that. There's a validation aspect too, right? right? Even if you know we share something and someone else sees it, and we get that validation. That's that's intelligence, right? That we can take that exactly. and consume. So it's like we're not the only target. There's other. We are the only target. We're not the only target, <laughs> right? right? We can see who else has been impacted by this, and that creates a different profile of the threat. Right. So going back to the um, resiliency and what you guys work on at Target, ransomware obviously is not just a security concern, it's a concern for the entire business. And what really struck me is how cross-departmental it is. You have to include all stakeholders in their strategy and get buy-in from them, work on the interdependencies. So tell me how that works and what your experiences are there. 
Yeah, well, we really try to include all of the teams that would be involved. And we treat them as experts in what they do. You know, we're not the experts on these systems. We're the experts in, you know, how this ransomware attack would play out. So it's really by bringing in those leaders and making sure that we're listening to what they're saying as much as they're listening to us um, so that we can find solutions that are going to work for them because, you know, that's not necessarily our area. We're just trying to facilitate this and make sure that we get this threat covered. Yeah, and I, you know, surprisingly, we've been met with great interest, right? I think we do a good job of delivering constant and routine intelligence to our partners outside of security, to the product owners, to you know, different lines of business. So they are used to receiving intelligence. And if we see you know, threat intelligence that is related to a certain product or application or service that we have, you know, we can deliver that in close to real time. So they're already had an understanding of some of the threats that are out there. And then when we talk ransomware, um, we've actually been met with a lot of interest in these these engineers who, again, focus on building things, have this passion now to say, I want to protect this thing the best that I can. We spend all this time and effort, and I love you know my application, and we want to protect it. We don't want to be responsible for you know a successful ransomware attack. So what can we do? And I think that's been in- the most interesting aspect is you know through conversations, it's really understanding the passion that everyone across the business has in, in sort of coming together to fight this one team. Communication is key, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, then how do you, once everything is kind of in motion, how do you get a feedback loop? How do you measure success for this, for resilience planning? That's, uh, that's probably the most difficult piece of ransomware preparedness, I guess, initiative. Um, but it's going to be different for every organization. How we measure success is going to be different how, you know, another organization does. And I think, you know, one of the things that we did that was really successful was when we had the initial conversations and we provided some questions that we wanted answered, they gave us a baseline. So, right, we take the baseline and then you go through your exercises and your discussions and you're talking about threat actors can do this and, and they can pivot here and they might exploit this. And so, when those product owners and engineers begin to act on that intelligence and close those gaps, now you have right starting point versus where you're at today. And I think that's a really good measurement, right? We talk about it all the time internally that, like, you know, for us, it just if a conversation leads to one action that, that you know a developer does to harden their system, like it was, that was a successful conversation, right? It doesn't have to be some big robust. You know, initiative, and so again, communication is key. But so again, I think within your organization, figure it out whatever works for you to measure success. I wouldn't even focus on measuring success. I would just focus on let's harden our environment, right? Like let's if we can get actions to come out of these conversations or this initiative to close gaps, to close vulnerabilities, to tighten access controls. That's a win because that's just one step further that we're taking to mitigate a potential tactic that a threat actor might use. And I think it also goes back to some of that initial communication and, you know, really building that trust with these teams, because if you have those initial conversations and they're just trying to say, we're great, you know, you know, if they think you're coming at them in a more adversarial way, like we're fine, we're hardened, everything's fine. You don't have something where you can then measure 
where you've improved upon from there. So um, it really is about a lot of that upfront communication and building trust as a security organization so that you're able to then go in and have those much more truthful and vulnerable conversations about where they're actually at so we can improve. Right, and becomes a partnership, which is great. Well, that's great. You guys are great partners of us. Thank you very much for your time, Ryan and Kelsey, and I appreciate it. Thank you for your insights. Thanks. All right. Thank you to my co-host, Ian, and our guests, Ryan, Kelsey, and Matt. Thank you all for listening, and stay safe out there.